The History Show with Mars Duncan. Good evening on this week's programme. It's this, you know, building crisis that continues year after year in Ireland that makes this such a devastating event. On Gertha Moore, we'll explore why Ireland was hit so hard by the potato blight and why the British government's response was so catastrophic as we preview a major new TV documentary on the Great Famine. Also, a daring parachute escape from a flying 727 somewhere between Reno and Seattle, Washington. The description on one wire service, master criminal. Who was D.B. Cooper? investigating the enigmatic skyjacker whose identity remains a mystery almost 50 years on. Plus... So it was an opportunity to both build on the pioneering work over the last 30 to 40 years on gender and revolution in Ireland and ask new research questions. Women and the Irish Revolution. We'll hear about a new book which reassesses women's experiences in the struggle for Irish freedom. But to begin this evening... It's been 175 years since the beginning of the Great Famine. Starting tomorrow evening, the history of Angortha Moore will be comprehensively told in a new two-part documentary on RTE1 television. It's called The Hunger, the story of the Irish famine, and part one airs tomorrow night at 25 minutes to 10. I'm joined now by Professor Peter Gray of Queen's University, Belfast. He's one of the contributors to that documentary series. Peter, you're very welcome indeed to The History Show. Thanks very much, Miles. Now, one of the things that the documentary does is put the Great Famine into an international context, which is not something that we see very often. The deadly fungus, obviously, that caused the potatoes to rot came from South America, crossed the Atlantic in cargo ships and infected potato crops, not just in Ireland, but throughout Europe in 1845. But, Peter, how did other countries in Europe respond to the uh, blight rather more efficiently than it was the case in Ireland. Uh, yeah, that's right. I mean, there are a number of countries in Europe that also have agricultural areas that are, are heavily dependent on potato subsistence. Flanders in Belgium, large parts of the north of France, Silesia in what is now Poland, Galicia as well in, in southern Poland, parts of Central Europe. You know, so the governing authorities in all these states are faced with a similar crisis, how to feed their people, given that the cheapest subsistence food has disappeared with this mysterious disease that that no one can understand. So, you know, different states respond in different ways, but there's a lot of attention paid uh, both by Irish observers and also uh, actually by the British government, whose diplomats are reporting back, uh, specifically on what Belgium and France are doing. Belgium is particularly heavily hit. Uh, because that's where the blight is first observed uh, on the continent in the early summer of 1845. And Belgium responds quite quickly in um, closing its ports and in, in preventing the export of grain within the country and also acting to uh, on use state money to purchase food from overseas to, to import it into the country and then also to, to use um, resources to set up public works and feeding stations and things like that. And there seems, it seems to be quite a high priority uh, within the Belgian government to be seen to be addressing this question effectively. And it, it, it's kind of, um, you know, the opposition in Belgium is pushing for more relief, you know, rather than criticising the government for, for doing too much, as to some extent is the case in, in Britain. 
So, yeah, so we see countries, uh, you know, the French government also, um, to a lesser degree, but uh, adopts similar policies. Not all countries do it. You know, um, the Netherlands, for example, is, is quite similar to, to Britain in its reliance on, on free trade and laissez-faire. But it's, it's Belgium that really, I think, attracts the attention of Irish observers like you know, Daniel O'Connell and, and also the, the Young Irelanders who, who write about it in their newspapers. Now, it seems to be of much shorter duration, the crisis in the rest of Europe, because the famine obviously goes on for much longer in Ireland. Arguably, its effects last until the the middle of the 1850s and I suppose, uh, you know, culturally well beyond. But the duration of the famine in Ireland is primarily, I think, due to Irish weather, isn't it? It is. Ireland's extremely unfortunate in terms of the, the combination of this new disease and the, the climatic conditions that allow it to propagate and to extend itself over a number of different harvest seasons. The blight, the, um, the fungal type infestation of the blight really thrives in mild, damp summers. Uh, it loves, you know, that, that's when the crops are coming into their full growth, and the tubers are forming. If you get, you know, damp and, and kind of mild, warmish summers, which Ireland is prone to, that really sees the, this uh, fungal type infestation propagate. Spores are then released onto the wind and they spread throughout fields. So in many parts of the continent, the following years, uh, in 1846, especially 1847, the, the summers are very dry. And then you've got harsh, quite cold winters as well. Both of these things pre- really prevent the, the disease from replicating itself to the same degree that we get in Ireland. So what we get in Ireland, obviously, in 1846, is, is an even worse, a much worse outbreak of the potato blight than in the previous year. You know, destroying probably upwards of nine-tenths of all the, the potato crops in Ireland. And then, uh, while it doesn't come back in 1847... Uh, for similar reasons as in the continent. There's no seed planted in 1847, which means that there's virtually no harvest. And then the disease does come back in Ireland, particularly in the western half of the country in 1848 and 1849, and then kind of more localised sporadic ways in the subsequent years. So it's this, you know, building crisis that continues year after year in Ireland that makes this such a devastating event. Now, the famine ultimately kills one in eight people living on this island. And obviously it has knock-on effects in terms of emigration. But the death rate alone makes it one of the most catastrophic famines in global history. When it first strikes in 1845, to some extent, Ireland is fortunate in the British Prime Minister at the time. And that's Sir Robert Peel, one of the only positives, I suppose, in political terms from that point of view, or from an Irish point of view anyway. Tell us about his reaction to the crisis. Yeah, I, th- I think there's there's a degree of truth in that. I mean, obviously, the, the first year, starting in 1845, running through to the middle of 1846, there's only a partial potato failure. The peasantry generally, in many cases, have something to pawn or something to sell to help get them through that year. But the government does seem to be more pragmatic uh, in responding in that first year than we see later on. Peel has got lots of experience of, of governing Ireland. He'd been chief secretary back in the 1810s. Home Secretary with responsibility for dealing with the 1822 famine as well. So he, you know, he he knows what's going to happen. He's also under a lot of political pressure from Daniel O'Connell to act 
quickly, you know, to prevent this becoming a big political issue for, for the O'Connellites. So what Peel does is there's a number of public actions and also a, a kind of more covert action. Covert action is to secretly buy uh, a certain amount of grain, £100,000 worth of Indian meal, which is the cheapest grain on the market in New York with uh, treasury money money and to bring that across to ireland put it into depots in the west and then release that uh throughout the following year uh to try and keep the price of food down it's not feeding everyone but it's regulating the prices that's quite an important intervention it's not replicated later on at all during the famine second thing he does is quite quickly in the course of the early months of 1846 to get uh, public works relief set up and operating and with relatively generous finance with a, a number of grants as, as well as as loans and this is to essentially to put uh, the unemployed the unemployed laboring population to work to give them some income to buy the food which then they'll, they'll be able to get in the markets ideally uh, you know with assistance from this imported food so it's kind of a, a coherent strategy there are certain things he's not prepared to do he's not prepared to do what the Belgians are doing and what many of the nationalists are calling for to ban food exports but prefers to try and encourage imports coming into Ireland and to do that he connects the crisis to probably you know his most uh, his most famous political action which is to repeal the corn laws to, to lift the taxes on importation yes in relation to the repeal of the corn laws that's something that happens then in 1846 and it was uh, one of you know it's a kind of a brexit type moment in a sense in uh, British politics causes the disruption the, the the splitting of the Conservative Party of Peel does that happen because of what's taking place in Ireland or is what's taking place in Ireland a pretext which causes the repeal of the Corn Laws I think it's a bit of both. If we think about what the Corn Laws do, they essentially these are laws passed in 1815 which impose uh, tariff uh, taxation on the import of grain coming into Britain and Ireland. And what that means, of course, is that they, they push, the, and they're deliberately meant to push the cost of food up to try and ensure bigger profits and, and therefore higher rents for commercial farmers and for landlords. The history show They're with very Dungan unpopular on with the RTE classes Radio you know, they, 1. They mean high food prices, but also with the British industrial middle classes because it means they're having to pay higher wages. They're also very much against uh, liberal economic theory, against uh, political economic ideas, going back to Adam Smith. So uh, I think Peel, like, like many uh, liberal economic thinkers and politicians, had been opposed to the continuation of these in the long run, but there'd been a lot of political resistance to doing anything about them. So Ireland, the Irish crisis creates the opportunity. There's no question about that. But it, there's also a clear rationale uh, relating to Ireland as well. Uh, it's not just Peel arguing that repealing the Corn Laws will, will bring the cost of food down in Ireland. O'Connell is doing that um, as well, very clearly. He's on, the, on exactly on the same page as indeed are the, 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 is the British Whig Liberal Party. So there's a consensus that this is going to be beneficial to Ireland. But in the long run, of course, it means quite a shift in the kind of economic balance of, of British policy. And in the short term, a split in Peel's governing Conservative Party, which means that his government collapses in the uh, summer of 1846. And is replaced by a Liberal administration led by John Russell, and he presides over the worst years of the famine. Why was his government's response such a disaster? It's a disaster from the Irish point of view, obviously. Yes, yeah, and I don't think there's any question that it is a disaster. 
this is quite a, a weak government under a weak prime minister. It doesn't have a majority in parliament. It has got a lot of kind of competing factions uh, within it. I think the dominant faction is one which is we would now describe perhaps as neoliberal in its ideology then it was just kind of simple simply liberal which is preoccupied with the idea that the famine is well first of all some kind of, of divinely ordained event sent for a purpose and secondly that purpose should be the reconstruction of Irish society and the, the reconstruction of Irish behaviour both landlord behaviour and peasant behaviour to force people to help themselves. So that this idea that the correct response to the famine is one of, of self-help and the state should do only the minimum required to promote that or to enforce that becomes, if you like, the dominant dogma. And you can see that very much in the, the defence of government policy written by Charles Trevelyan, the Assistant Secretary to the Treasury, which is published uh, at the start of 1848. He makes those arguments very clearly indeed. Now, Trevelyan is about as popular in Ireland as Oliver Cromwell. He's been demonised for his uh, prognostications, his statements, his philosophy and his actions during the uh, period of the famine. Things like uh, declaring the famine is over in 1847, closing soup kitchens. Is that uh, demonisation justified? Well, Trevelyan's a civil servant, but he's very much the public face of the government in terms of, of uh, famine relief. It's his name that appears in all the, the public correspondence and in reports in the newspapers. And of course, he publishes this defence of the government's policy in 1848. Uh, but behind him, of course, there were ministers, um, the, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Charles Wood, um, a number of other ministers like like Lord Grey, for example, who are pushing very similar policies. And I mean, they're they're the you know responsible the responsible members of the cabinet. But beyond them, there's also a large segment of British public opinion, you know, represented by newspapers like the Times, for example, which is also pushing for this policy of minimal state spending and forcing the Irish to help themselves, avoiding moral hazard, you know, the danger of creating a dependency culture, as we call it now, and also blaming the landlords, blaming the Irish landlords as a class for causing this crisis in the first place and trying to transfer the costs of relief very much onto them. Now, there is a notion that Ulster was untouched by all this. You're, you're speaking to me from Belfast at the moment. Was that true? No, I mean, the famine is a national phenomenon. It affects every part of the island in one way or another. Every part of the island has got poorer people who are um, dependent on potatoes. But, of course, the, the intensity of suffering does vary from, from place to place. The western seaboard by far is the, is the worst hit part of the country but upland poor quality land mountainous land you know there's lots of that in in west ulster there's lots of economically depressed countryside in south ulster where the uh, cottage linen industry is collapsing people are, are have got very low incomes as a consequence these are also really badly hit areas and it's and people move as well of course i mean one of the survival strategies that the rural poor adopt is to get out of the places where there is no no where the public works have been closed down or or fever epidemics are running rampant, the workhouses are, are, are full up, to try and go where there might be work or there might be charity or there might be the opportunity to get off the island uh, in an immigrant ship. So people walk to the urban centres 
to Dublin, but also to Belfast and to Derry, and they come through other urban centres. I mean, notoriously, there's a major uh, fever outbreak in, in Lurgan in County Armagh, you know, in the centre of the of the linen belt of the, um, you know, the industrialising area, and that is because, in part, there are these huge numbers of people on the roads, bringing the disease with them, and out of desperation finding themselves you know in shanty towns or in workhouse accommodation along the paths they're taking towards the ports now photography was in its infancy at the time of the famine realistically the images that we get of rural ireland from the the 19th century more or less start in the 1860s and and, and even in the, in the 1870s but there's still imagery widespread imagery of the brutal reality of the famine and these came from the drawings of the london illustrated news and uh, in particular the the cork artist james mahoney he was actually hired to go to the skibbereen area and draw what he saw are those very very stark or are they stylized or as somebody even suggests in the in the program romanticized yeah, Mahoney is a classically trained artist. He's a portrait painter and landscape artist in, in Cork. Um, so, you know, I mean, he, he the way he draws human forms and, and landscapes uh, for publication in the Illustrated London News reflects his training. Uh, there are other processes then involved, you know. Um, th- these sketches are sent to London, an editor makes a selection, and then they're engraved. And at each of these stages, you know, modifications are made. The illustrated newspapers are really a very new phenomenon in the 1840s. The Illustrated London News has only been set up a few years earlier. There were a few rival ones also hiring artists to report uh, or to, and to draw sketches from the west of Ireland. So they're an important way in which the famine is visualised by people who aren't there themselves, you know, by, by English middle class and perhaps even some skilled working class readers. Uh, who would see these weekly newspapers, either buy them or read them in reading rooms. And some of these images then also are, are, are taken up by illustrated newspapers overseas as well, in continental Europe, um, certainly in, in, in the French illustrated press, the illustrated London news images are picked up. So they are very influential, but they're representations of a reality, obviously, rather than, you know, kind of photographic images. Well, uh, Peter, thank you very much indeed for uh, talking to us. It's a very, very powerful series and uh, Kawarthika's congratulations to Ruan McGann and the team involved in putting it together and rather counterintuitively, given the content, it actually looks uh, extraordinarily uh, beautiful. So a beautifully produced two-part documentary that we've been uh, talking about and we've just covered a few aspects of this pivotal event in Irish history, which is covered more comprehensively in the uh, two part documentary series. Professor Peter Gray, thank you very much indeed for joining us this evening. Thanks very much, Miles. That documentary once again is called The Hunger, The Story of the Irish Famine. Part 1 airs tomorrow night on RTE1 television at 25 minutes to 10. Part 2 is the following Monday at the same time. And by the way, there's also a great series of articles and features on the famine up at the moment over at rte.ie forward slash history. After the break... The story of the skyjacker D.B. Cooper, an enigmatic outlaw who's captivated the American imagination for almost 50 years. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. Welcome back. We're in the midst of an important period in the decade of centenaries. This month alone saw the 100th anniversaries of Kevin Barry's execution, Bloody Sunday, and yesterday, of course, was the anniversary of the Kilmichael ambush in County Cork. 
There's a lot of centenary events going on, most of them virtual, and uh, we just wanted to, to mention Machnev 100, a series of online reflections on the War of Independence and the Civil War hosted by President Higgins. The first in this series is called Challenges of Public Commemoration, a seminar in which a range of speakers will contemplate commemoration itself and the contexts of the national and global events of a century ago. It takes place this Friday, the 4th of December, at 2pm, and it will be streamed on the RTE Player and on RTE News Now. We'll put more details on our website. Now we're going back to 1971 to investigate a crime, which still stands today as the only unsolved plane hijacking in American history. On the day before Thanksgiving that year, a man known only by the pseudonym D.B. Cooper carried out an audacious act of airborne piracy, 10,000 feet over Washington State. Colin Flynn has the story. It was a cold, stormy night on November the 24th, 1971. There was a strong wind, heavy rain, and it was pitch black. And somewhere between Seattle, Washington and Reno, Nevada, a man fell from the skies. He was wearing a parachute and had $200,000 in cash strapped to his body. He had just jumped from a passenger plane in midair. And despite being trailed by two fighter jets and one of the biggest manhunts in the history of the FBI, the man disappeared into the black of night and was never found, seen, or heard from again. He parachuted out of the plane, and he hasn't been seen since. A few hours before that unbelievable scene played out, a thin man in his mid-40s, well-dressed in a black suit with a black tie and carrying a black briefcase, walked into Portland International Airport in Oregon and purchased a one-way ticket to Seattle, Washington. He gave the name Dan Cooper and he boarded the plane. Departure runway through the left, clear for takeoff. When Northwest Airlines 305 took to the skies, little did the other 36 passengers or six crew members know that sitting quietly at the back of the plane, smoking a cigarette and drinking bourbon, was a man who was about to carry out one of the most daring crimes in aviation history. It was shortly after takeoff that Dan Cooper handed a note to Florence Schaffner, one of the flight attendants on the plane. Florence assumed the note contained a lonely businessman's phone number and she put it straight into her purse. Dan Cooper leaned towards her and he gently and politely whispered, Miss, you better take a look at that note. I have a bomb. He was not nervous. He seemed rather nice. And other than he wanted certain things to be done. She sat down beside him and he opened his briefcase just enough so that she could see what appeared to be six sticks of dynamite inside. Cooper told her he wanted the plane to land and he wanted $200,000 in cash. He wanted parachutes, and when the plane landed, he wanted a fuel truck on standby, ready to refuel the plane. He told her if they didn't comply and meet his demands, he would, quote, do the job. 
The pilot contacted Seattle Airport, who informed the FBI, and the other passengers were completely unaware of the dangerous situation that was unfolding. The pilot made an announcement that their arrival in Seattle would be delayed because of a minor mechanical difficulty, and for around two hours the plane circled the airport, while on the ground the FBI scrambled to collect $200,000 in cash. Eventually, the plane landed in Seattle. Jeffrey Gray is the author of the book Skyjack, The Hunt for D.B. Cooper. Well, in Seattle, on the rainy tarmac, the demands are met. The passengers are all let off, and the money and the parachutes are brought on board directly to him. It's just him and her, her being Tina Mucklow, the youngest stewardess on the, on the crew. And inside the cockpit, there are a pilot, a co-pilot, and a flight engineer who had never left the cabin all throughout the flight. He wants the plane to go to Mexico City. He demanded to be flown to Mexico City, but was told the plane couldn't hold enough fuel. For a while, they debated about which airport they could stop at to refuel, before he told the pilots to get the show on the road. And the plane once again took to the skies, headed for Mexico City with the agreement that they would stop to refuel in Reno, Nevada. And this is where the story gets even more unbelievable. Picture the scene. It's a stormy, rainy, windy and freezing cold night. The plane is flying in the dark over woodland and has now been followed closely by two fighter jets. Dan Cooper orders the pilots to fly at a lower altitude of 10,000 feet and reduce the plane's speed to the minimum amount without the plane stalling and falling out of the sky, which was 115 miles an hour. He put on one of the parachutes, and with material from a second parachute, he strapped the $200,000 to his body. He then ordered the air hostess Tina McLeod to join the pilots in the cockpit and close the door. Eric Kleinsmith works for the American Military University and has been working with a team analyzing the D.B. Cooper case for 10 years. Uh, as the flight attendants were up front and uh, the pilot, they, they noticed a noticeable shift in the weight of the aircraft, almost as if they're hitting an air pocket. And, uh, and that they understood that that was probably the moment that he had dropped the back entrance. Amazingly, he opened the plane's rear door and somewhere over the forest, he jumped from the plane, hurling himself into the history books. That's the last time anybody saw him. When he got on a plane in Portland, Oregon last night, he was just another passenger. But today, after hijacking a Northwest Airlines jet, ransoming the passengers in Seattle, then making a getaway by parachute somewhere between there and Reno, Nevada, the description on one wire service, master criminal. The manhunt began that morning, and it was an epic manhunt that followed. I mean, one of the biggest in, in the nation's history. And one of the first things they tried to do, in addition to figuring out who he was, was where he landed. Now, this area of terrain to search is some of the re most remote, if not the most remote in this country. It is where Bigfoot lives. The military deployed approximately a 1,000 troops who searched the suspected jump zone on foot and in helicopters, but there was no parachute, no clothes, no body, 
no trace of him whatsoever. A sketch of Dan Cooper was published in almost every newspaper in the country and flashed all over TV for months. Rewards were offered for any information leading to his arrest and the serial numbers on the banknotes of the $200,000 were published. The FBI interviewed over 800 suspects, but one by one they were discounted. They had come to a dead end, until almost 10 years later, when an 8-year-old boy playing on a small beach by the Columbia River, which was several miles from where Cooper had jumped, dug up in the sand $5,800 in cash. The serial numbers matched the ransom money given to Cooper, but to this date, the rest of the money has never been found. This is the largest piece uh, that we've found so far. Uh, it has a, a, almost the entire serial number on it, but most of the pieces are very much smaller, about the size of a dime or even smaller. Let me just ask you one other thing. A lot of this earlier, the larger bills were found closer to the surface, these later ones down lower. How long ago might it have been that they were buried? Some of this money was found two and three feet deep in the sand. I would just guess that it would be uh, four, five, six years. Over the years, many people have come forward claiming they suspect a friend or a family member was D.B. Cooper. I'm certain he was my uncle, Lynn Doyle Cooper. Raxfraw's D.B. Cooper. Yeah. You sure? I'm sure. Everybody's got a suspect. They're still looking for Elvis. Are you D.B. Cooper? Are you D.B. Cooper? One man even claims to have met him on the night of the jump when he stopped in a small diner on his way to play music at a country club. And I'm sitting there drinking coffee, and this man walks in. He's soaking wet. Got black slick back hair, a black suit, black penny loafers. And he comes up to me, and he says, kid, he says, where am I? I said, well, you're about four miles east of Cleellum. He said, if I make a phone call, he says, could you give this friend of mine directions how to get here to pick me up? I said, sure, no problem. And he said, well, don't worry about your coffee, kid. He says, I'll take care of it. Shook hands with the man. I got out got in a truck and I left. Dan Cooper was on the FBI's most wanted list for 45 years until they announced they were closing the case in 2016. Eyewitnesses who saw him on that flight that night in 1971 estimated he was in his 40s. And so if he did survive the jump and lived in hiding for the rest of his life, he would now be in his 90s or he would be dead meaning the case of D.B. Cooper would have died with him, and so it will most likely remain a great mystery forevermore. He parachuted out of the plane. It landed in Reno, and he hasn't been seen since. Colin Flynn was reporting there on the amazing story of D.B. Cooper. 49 years on, the case is still a source of intense speculation and the identity of the mysterious skyjacker continues to confound the authorities. After the break, we'll hear about a new book on women's experiences in the Irish Revolution. Stay with us. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. During this decade of centenaries, there's been a huge amount of research into aspects of the Irish Revolution that were previously forgotten or overlooked. 
women and their activism in the revolutionary cause has been a big part of this. We're going to hear now about a new book that explores how the events of this period impacted women's lives. It's called Women and the Irish Revolution, Feminism, Activism, Violence. The editor of the book is Professor Linda Connolly, Director of the Social Sciences Institute at Maynooth University. And Linda joins me now. Linda, you're very welcome indeed to The History Show. Thank you, Miles. Tell us first, what was the overall aim of the the book and how did it come about? First of all, the book was uh, funded by an Irish Research Council New Foundations grant in 2017. And it arose very much on the foot of the commemoration of 1916 in 2016, where we saw increasing attention on women who had fought as combatants in the rising and more critical questions perhaps than had been asked before about the role of women. So a number of new questions were arising and it was very important, I felt, to turn our attention then to looking at the period after the rising up until broadly speaking, the end of the Civil War, where it was presumed perhaps that women played less of a role because of, you know, the nature of the violence, the transgressive violence that occurred. Some women were involved in coming among, etc. But it was broadly presumed that this was a masculinist war where men were mainly fighting against other men and men were mainly killed. So it struck me very much at the time that it was necessary, first of all, to ask new questions about both the role and the experience of women in this later period. And then secondly, perhaps to challenge some of the myths about women's experience of the War of Independence and the Civil War in particular. So as part of the IRC project, I organised a public conference in the Royal Irish Academy, which brought together a number of scholars with two aims. One, to really very much embed detailed pieces of research in the work that had already been done, the pioneering work of people like Margaret Ward, for instance, uh, who used the term unmanageable revolutionaries in her book, her pioneering book. But secondly, to produce new research, to ask new questions, particularly in light of the wonderful range of new documentary sources that we have available now in Ireland in only very recent years. So it was an opportunity to both build on the pioneering work over the last 30 to 40 years on gender and revolution in Ireland, but then secondly, to conduct new research and ask new research questions. So there are 12 chapters, 12 different contributors. They aren't all historians. You take a multidisciplinary approach. Give us an idea of the disciplines that are involved here. Sure. So obviously there are historians, women's historians, gender historians, but also historians of the revolution. But then there are perspectives in sociology, for instance. The theories of revolution that have developed in other disciplines haven't really been uh, rigorously applied to the Irish context. And certainly the theories of gender and revolution, where we begin to, I suppose, look at how attention to gender in both the unfolding of revolutions and the building of new states has been looked at, for instance, by uh, Valentin Magadam in relation to 20th century revolutions in Mexico, Algeria, Iran, uh, etc. We could go on Russia, China, Cuba uh, and so forth. So so there's an awful lot to be looked at from the perspective of looking at what has been written about revolution. And secondly, 
gender in war, in civil war. So we can learn a lot, for instance, from the Spanish Civil War and the Greek Civil War and other civil wars internationally. And then I suppose we also have perspectives from literature as well. We can learn more about the past and in particular about the period of revolution from looking at literary sources as well. So it is a historical text. It relies mainly on archives, on documents, but it's an attempt, I suppose, to broaden out our understanding of revolution beyond that, I suppose, narrow perspective, the idea that gender was perhaps an add-on rather than being constitutive of the revolution itself. You've got a chapter in there yourself. It's called Towards a Further Understanding of the Sexual and Gender-Based Violence Women Experienced in the Irish Revolution. Now, gendered violence is a term that we're hearing more in relation to this period. What exactly does it mean and how prevalent was it? Well, first of all, if you move outside the literature on the Irish Revolution, this isn't a new term at all. I suppose the most straightforward way to explain that in terms of this period of Irish history is that where you have conflict or war, there tends to be a gender dimension. It's gendered. It was mostly men who were killed. Uh, the women who were killed were casualties, if you like. They weren't, you know, combatants. They weren't involved in that kind of violence. But w- the idea that women weren't impacted by violence is untrue when we actually look at sources. So what we can see is that women did experience a different kind of violence that was gendered. And what I mean by that is that women experienced different kinds of violence in larger numbers than perhaps men did. So a very good example, Miles, is the practice that we saw, particularly in the War of Independence, but also afterwards, of forced haircutting. Uh, Different terms are used, shearing, cropping, shaving and it might seem like a lenient form of punishment but this was conducted all over the country by both sides crown forces ira as a way of both punishing women who were either seen as being close to the enemy or as being traitors as betraying the cause so to speak it was gendered in that it was aimed at women but secondly it was policing women's behaviour and sexuality primarily. So who women, for instance, were free to have relationships with uh, or be friendly with or even speak to. So that's an example of how in any conflict or war, uh, violence is gendered. It tends to be targeted differently at men and women. And because women's violence was different, perhaps the violence women experienced was different. It doesn't mean necessarily that it was lenient. Uh, This had uh, quite an impact uh, on women in terms of their perception in the community. But also haircutting was often also accompanied by other violence, very traumatic violence, such as beatings, you know, very frightening raids on houses, sexual assault as well. To some extent, we are slowly getting an insight into Uh, sexual assault as an aspect of the conflict. So the gendered violence really suggests that women experienced violence, but in a different way, and that this was determined in some way by gender. Now, when it came to this sort of sexual policing, there's an inherent contradiction. Uh, You might even say hypocrisy, because in relation to the issue, the, the witness statements and pension files of many women have revealed that the IRA were apparently quite happy for women to befriend the Crown forces, as long as they were doing it for different reasons, for non-sexual reasons. 
Sure, absolutely. So again, that's a very good example, isn't it, of how violence is both gendered, but it's also shaped by the particular context or, or conflict. So as we know, for instance, women as combatants were, were crucially important. Uh, you, you know, we can see that in the witness statements, you know, in terms of carrying messages, you know, bringing supplies late at night in very dangerous conditions, you know, to men who are hiding out perhaps in surrounding countryside carrying information that could damage the other side, so to speak. So yes, absolutely. But then, on the other hand, in terms of women expressing agency or choice in relation to relationships with men, or indeed being employed in some way by the Crown forces or working in a shop or a service that served the RIC or the Crown forces, was treated completely differently and was a basis uh, for the kind of gendered punishment uh, that I spoke about earlier. And this is not sort of just stopping an individual woman and, and cutting her hair and walking away. Sometimes that did happen, but very often, and we see many reports in the newspapers, for instance, of this being often gangs, large gangs of, of men from the IRA side, 9, 10, sometimes up to 15, masked, taking the women away from the road or away from the house and, and cutting their hair in this manner, holding them down, etc. So that would have been extremely frightening and very traumatising for an individual woman, often a, a young woman, who was quite simply considered to have a close relationship. And it wasn't just that she may be carrying information, it was that she was actually exercising choice in terms of her sexuality. And so in a sort of a non-romantic way, Miles, sexuality and relationships likewise and gender can tell us a lot, I think, about the way in which the conflict was played out at the sort of micro level in terms of how locally, if you like, movements were monitored. And clearly the behaviour of women was monitored very closely indeed. Now, in terms of new research, you're actually still discovering some of these stories most recently yes. in relation to an incident in uh, Tankardstown in County Meath. What's, tell us about that. What, what did you discover there? Yes. So again, this is very typical of the kind of work that I do. You, you know, you don't have, for instance, what we might call a sexual assault archive in Ireland. And often this kind of research, you, f you find a source hidden or embedded somewhere where you're least expecting it. But this is one I actually found in the newspapers. And What's really interesting, I think, often about looking at the role of women specifically in the Irish Revolution is how a lot of these stories, if you want to call them that, or events seem to have disappeared very quickly from the public memory and are quite embedded in, in the private memory, so to speak. So this was uh, very typical, really, of the period 1922. Tankardstown, which I'm sure you know well, Miles, from Kells, is just between Navan and Kells. And in September 1922, there were four named men in a newspaper report who raided two public houses and both of whom were lived in by uh, widows. In one case, Mrs Finnegan in Gritia, which is not too far from Tankardstown. She was living there, running a public house, and she had quite young children. So this group, who on arrival claimed to be irregulars, terrorised the, the woman and her, her children. Her husband had died from TB. 
then they moved on to a second public house, which, again, this is a very typical story of the area, who happened to be the sister-in-law of the other Mrs. Finnegan, uh, Mrs. Elizabeth Finnegan. She was also a widow. Her husband, a brother of the, the former Mr. Finnegan, he also died of TB. So the two brothers died of TB, both owned public houses. And then in the case of Mrs. Elizabeth Finnegan's uh, pub at Tankerstown, Again, there was uh, a long raid, quite a violent atmosphere, and it was reported in the Meath Chronicle that one of the men raped a, a servant girl, a Mary Doyle, and a second attempted uh, assault, a sexual assault. And this is reported, there was, at the time, obviously, the, the, the kind of legal system was you know, not operating properly, but there was a public, a parish court, it's phrased in the report, held in Kells. The four men were arrested. They were sent to Mount Joy. I have seen the records of this and subsequently appeared in Trim Circuit Court. And it's interesting that Mary Doyle, who was probably about 17 from what I can gather at the time, she testified in the parish court in Kells, which was packed. And it was Mrs Finnegan who encouraged her, who was insistent, I suppose, on pursuing this, despite what was probably an incredibly terrifying event with fear of reprisal afterwards. The courtroom was packed and for Mary's testimony, the courtroom was cleared. So the men were arrested. They subsequently were brought to Trim and there were two charges. One was obviously the the charge of, of robbery, which the two men who were brothers, the men were acquitted of by jury. And the second charge of rape never proceeded because they were acquitted on the first charge. But it's reported in quite a lot of detail in the newspapers. And I think it's interesting it really is a question of, you know, if we if we don't look, you know, the women are not there. And it's only when you begin to ask these questions, the kinds of questions that are being posed by the authors uh, in the chapters in this book, that you begin to see then in the sources other examples of what women really experienced, the trauma they experienced. And it allows us, I think, as in the case of Mary Doyle, to say, well, well, you know, you wonder whatever happened to her, how she lived her life and what the impact of the revolution was in her life and other women like her who experience that kind of sexual policing and uh, sexual violence, indeed, that I spoke about earlier. Now, after the revolution, during the, the, the 1920s, the period of the Conagoyle government, yes. women were very definitely in Ireland anyway, ushered back into the kitchen. That, though, as you point out in your introduction, although Ireland was not unique in that respect, that was not the case in all revolutions in the 20th century, was it? No. And again, here, you know, I think we have an awful lot to learn. And I suppose in this book, I'm really raising a lot of these questions. I haven't done a, a global study of international gender relations in relation to the Irish Revolution. But we, we do look and raise these questions in the book. And as I said, I, I draw on the work of Valentin uh, Mokadam in, in particular, she argues, first of all, that attention to gender in the unfolding of revolutions and the building of new states is, is deficient in many studies. But she also drew particular account to the different models, if you like. And she suggests there are, there are two models. One is a women in the family model was followed in the 20th century by Mexico, Algeria, Iran and, and Eastern European countries, among others. 
And in all these cases, she suggests that the strong roles played by women in making revolutions were rolled back by new regimes which stressed ideologies of gender difference. And this, I think, is a model that clearly applies to Ireland's revolution and its aftermath. When we look at, you know, the very clear erosion of women's rights, things like in 1927, you know, women were effectively banned from sitting on juries, for instance, and that wasn't changed until 1976. And there are other examples. Whereas in contrast, Mogadam argues that in, just to give you some examples again, Russia, China, Cuba... Vietnam, Nicaragua, etc. By contrast, women actually gained more formal and actual rights, despite, if you like, the recuperation of their own autonomous organisations by the states that emerged. So again, that's very typical. The organisations that were very active, like Kamenaman, etc., or the women who were, this is looked at in the book in Claire McGing's chapter, the, the women who were involved in the anti-treaty debates, these were very effective, powerful women in their own right, very quickly, if you like, their politics and organisations were recuperated in the new state. But in some societies, women actually gained more uh, formal and actual rights. So that wasn't the case in Ireland. And what it suggests, I suppose, is that revolutions clearly possess a gender dimension that opens up a space for further understanding the causes, the course and the outcomes of revolutions, including the Irish Revolution, which took its own particular course, as we know, 100 years later. The book is called Women and the Irish Revolution, Feminism, Activism, Violence. It's published by Irish Academic Press and is available now. The book gives a great insight into how the Irish Revolution impacted women and is hopefully a springboard for further research into this aspect of our history. Linda Connolly, many thanks for joining us on The History Show this evening. Thank you, Miles. That's all we've time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. Our researcher is Liz Gillis. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan, and producer Lorcan Cansey, goodbye and thanks for listening.